Hi, and welcome to the Genesis Podcast. We're so glad to be able to bring a small portion of our community to you through this medium and hope that you'll join us in our endeavor to embolden one another to change the world by effectively representing Jesus Christ. If you would like to know more about who we are as a community, as well as when and where we meet, you can visit us online at thegenesisstory.com. Also, if you have benefited from this podcast in any way or would like to participate in what we're doing here at Genesis, would you consider partnering with us by donating online again at www.thegenesisstory.com. There you can select the giving tab and how you would like to contribute to the general fund or even to the building fund. Remember, we can do more together than we can ever do alone. Thanks for taking the time to be with us. God bless. Well, let's get started. We're going to look at two more of the churches here uh, in the book of Revelation, um, chapter 3. But let's pause, let's pray, and then we'll get started. Father, once again, we are thankful for our time together. We are thankful for allowing us, Lord, to read these words and grow from them. Lord, the things that you spoke to your people so long ago, you're speaking to us still. And they are timeless, Lord. Even though they were anchored in a a period of time, Father, the truths that come through are enduring forever. And I do pray that we would grasp hold of those things, Lord. We would allow them to penetrate our hearts, our lives, that we would wrestle with them and that they would be victorious in us and accomplish your work through us, Father. Bless our time together. I do pray for Kristen, Lord, again in her pregnancy, that you would bless her, give her health and strength. And Ben, as he's so excited now and all the things as they're developing, I pray you'd bless them. Uh, Be with my daughter-in-law, Lauren, also, Lord, as she's in another just a month away. And Brenda could be having her baby any day now, Lord. I pray that you would bless her. And again, thank you for all the people who contributed to make that uh, delivery possible with her doctor, Lord. I'm so grateful for your people and for how you show mercy through us. Thank you for this time, Lord. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. So we're going to look at the Church of Sardis and Philadelphia, and then we'll save Laodicea for the next time. It's probably spend the whole time on that church because that's got some powerful things I think we've all heard, and some points I think are worth taking time for. Well, they're all worth time. Revelation chapter three. Starting at verse 1, it says, To the angel of the church of Sardis write, These are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up, strengthen what remains, and is about to die. For I have found your deeds unfinished in the sight of my God. Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard. Hold it fast and repent. But if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what time I will come to you. Yet you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. They will walk with me, dressed in white, for they are worthy. The one who is victorious will, like them, be dressed in white. I will never blot out the name of that person from the book of life, but will acknowledge that name before my father and his angels. Whoever has ears... Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now, each of these letters has something important for us to learn, and not just in the subject matter itself about what is being said to the church, but also um, about what church is about, and, I, you know, church in general. Um, because these are things that are supposed to take place in community. There is supposed to be affirming one another. And we see that in each of these letters, that there's an affirming. What are you doing right? It's good to have someone help us understand what we are doing right. 
so that we can continue doing it, so that we can continue pressing forward in whatever is going right. And then there's also the correcting one another. And again, these are things that should be taking place in community. What are the things you're getting wrong? What are the things that you're doing wrong? How are you maybe slipping or what areas need to be looked at a bit more closely and maybe even repented of and change how you're doing things? That is such an important part of life, right? That That's not something that just happened when you were a kid and you had to be disciplined or then when you were a teenager or then when you weren't a follower of Jesus, even as a follower of Jesus, we need to be corrected. It's something that God does and it's something that we're supposed to do to one another. And then there's a motivating one another, helping each other to keep going to strengthen each other so that we don't give up, that we know that there is something to gain from this and the promises of God are waiting for us. And so we have these areas of affirming, of correcting and motivating that are an important part of life and they're an important part of each of these letters. Even though there are short letters to each of these churches, you see these things that are developing in them. And Sardis was once thought to be an impregnable city because it was built on top of a steep hill until about 546 BC when the Persian army came and they had some people hike up this steep hill and actually got past that hill, were able to go into the city and conquer it because they let their guard down. They thought no one can ever attack us from this place. They weren't watching and sure enough, that's what happened. The Persian army found their way in. It was a daring attack. And just like the Titanic, right? It was something that you don't forget. Remember the Titanic? They thought it was unsinkable and look what happened. Same thing, Sardis. Oh, we're, we're impregnable. We can never be defeated. And they were. And so we see that Sardis is a city that has these kinds of things involved with it. I have found your deeds unfinished, he says. Or they leave a lot to be desired. What happens to our faith and of our testimony when it falls short when we fail to carry the name Christian, when we do not reflect who Jesus is. What happens to us when that takes place? Well, more importantly, what happens to who we're supposed to be? Right? It, it, it's an identity crisis. This is who I'm supposed to be like, but this is who I am. And there's a discrepancy. And what happens is we start living beneath what we were supposed to be. And then what happens is we either continue living in that way or we change. We repent. We take the criticism and we grow. You know, Jesus said to pick up our cross and to follow him. Follow him. Anyone putting his hand on the plow and looking back is not fit for the kingdom of God. There is this, you're in it, period. There is not like, well, I'm going to believe a little bit about Jesus, but, you know, then I'm still going to kind of live my own life when it is too, you know, invasive into my life. And then this is where something would come across this rebuke and say, you can't do this. You are falling short. Your deeds are unfinished. You are not representing things right. There's a lot to be desired about this faith that you say you have. And so anyone who's claiming this identity of Christ then has the responsibility of bearing that name. And he gives another charge in verse 4 and 5. In contrast to these few, there are some who are faithful, right? 
You have a few who are faithful in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. They will walk with me dressed in white, for they are worthy. The one who is victorious will, like them, be dressed in white. And so here's this idea. There are some who are representing me well. There are some who are looking like they should look. And the idea of dressed in white, uh, there's a couple of thoughts. Some think that it's a laziness that they are too lazy to clean their clothes, that that they are not willing to put in the effort to make themselves look presentable. Or else it could be some immoral behavior, right? They're not living a pure life like they should, and so it is showing up in this stain. And, and these ideas of white clothes are something that would be worn or seen in a baptism when they're kind of representing themselves to God as being pure before God. And so we see there's this contrast between these two people. And he says, if it continues, that the church in Sardis will suffer the same fate as the city suffered six centuries earlier, right? They are too going to find themselves being asleep, missing the opportunity because they weren't vigilant and then they're defeated. And this idea of a thief in verse 3, they won't know what time it will happen. And this echoes similar sayings that spoken of by Paul and by Peter as well as Jesus, right? First Thessalonians 5, 2, 2 Peter 3, 10, and Matthew 24, 43. It was an Regular warning sounded among the early Christians. Jesus will come and hold us accountable for our actions at that time. Now, will this coming that he talks about be the final day, the the day of the Lord, when Jesus ushers in the kingdom of God finally and continually? And the second coming as we kind of understand it. Is he talking about that? Probably not. Though there is that ultimate backdrop. In other words, he might be not talking about that specific day of the Lord when Jesus returns and ushers in the kingdom himself, but that is where everything is heading, right? The kingdom is and is not yet And so it's moving in that direction. But throughout this book, we see other comings, which may consist in time of persecution when Jesus is coming to cleanse and purify his church, or moments of comfort and restoration where he's coming to bring comfort. Comfort even in Laodicea, as we're going to see, is promised that if he opened the door, he will come into them and eat with them. And so there are a lot of times where we see throughout this book Jesus coming in some way that it doesn't necessarily mean that ultimate, you know, as we've understood it, the second coming in the times past. Here it seems to be that the coming may well be a time of persecution or simply just an internal collapse that takes place there at the church, a church quietly drowning in its ineffectiveness, a church that's drowning because they are actually offensive to Christ, and so they will not survive in that condition, unable to believe that that reputation is going to stay alive any longer, or it won't deserve to stay alive any longer. They will actually die to be, die in their example of what they're supposed to be. And so the idea of this happening doesn't necessarily mean the end of all things or the end of all ages, but it would be the end of them. It would be the end of their witness. It would be the end of what they are supposed to be doing, and it's going to happen if they do not live right. And it always happens. It always happens to the followers of Jesus who no longer represent Jesus, then they stop being effective. They have no voice. They have no witness. And their voice gets drowned out and gets lost. And pretty soon it's no different than all the other voices around them. And so there should always be something that is holding on to the core of who Christ is. 
And I believe that that's what he's talking about here. But there's also the promise, right? There is that encouraging. There is that, hey, there is something more if you will do what you need to do. There is that, you know, finish line. There is that light at the end of the tunnel that this isn't just a labor that doesn't end. The promise to those who wake up, those who will come alive, so to speak, those who will recognize that Jesus is speaking to them, that he is calling them to live in this life, the promise to those who wake up is to conquer. And to those who have managed to keep their clothes from being polluted is that they're going to share that procession with Jesus. Now, when did Jesus conquer? Well, the resurrection was definitely when we would think of conquering. But how did he conquer? It was the cross, right? It was going to the cross where he submitted his will to the will of God. And at that point, he was victorious. The resurrection is the evidence of God's approval on what he had done. And so when we start thinking of conquering again, we have to go back to how did Jesus conquer? Because this is what's important for us to understand. The theme's going to be taken up again and again later on in the book, but they're going to wear white robes as people did again in these processions, again in these areas where they're baptized, they would do, and they'd come out of the water. They would, in other words, share in the victory of Jesus overall, including death itself. And that's what he's talking about, not so much that we are going to take charge over all these people, but we are going to be free from the drowning of human humanity and the filth that comes with that humanity. And more than that, their names will stay where they are in the book of life, which, again, this is a curious thing, not being blotted out of that. It's mentioned in various other places in Revelation, chapter 13, 17, 20. It's going to be in 21. It's going to have a lot of reoccurrences this time of the name being blotted out. And the idea goes all the way back to Israel in Exodus, where it wasn't a good circumstance, but God was going to blot them out of his book. And it was only an act of mercy that rescued the situation. Right? There's also, closer to the time when this is being written, many Greek cities had an official register of all the citizens that were there in the city. And those who would be condemned to death, what they would do is before they would actually execute them, they would blot their name out so that the citizens facing that penalty would not be part of their city any longer. And so it can carry that kind of meaning as well that, you know, your name will be blotted out. In other words, you will not represent Jesus whether it means they will never be a part of the kingdom of God or not, it doesn't look like they will if they continue living apart from it. Right? There is the need to adapt to what God is doing to be a part of what God is going to be doing. And if you refuse to do that, you are in some way forsaking what God is doing. And so there is a a stern warning here about don't misrepresent who Christ is and think that you can go on unchecked. Don't think that it won't have some effect on you to some degree. It is going to affect you. And to what extent, I don't know, but it doesn't look good, right? It doesn't look promising, something that is taking place. Now, John isn't advancing this idea of predestination. I don't believe that that's what he's talking about. And you ever notice that the ones who talk about predestination and their names being always there are always the ones whose names are already always there? 
In other words, when you believe in predestination, you believe you're already one of the ones predestined. It always works that way. Um, but he's holding out a standard, that early Christian warning, going back to those of John the Baptist, Paul and Jesus, of course, himself. It's a warning against presuming that belonging to the community of God without behaving like the community of God is okay. It's not enough to call yourself a Christian. It's not enough to go to church. It's not enough to know the scriptures. It's not enough to say you believe. It takes a change, right? And again, we immediately go, are you going to heaven or hell? And I don't think that that's even the bottom line here. I I think the bottom line is your life. Is your life in line with God or is it stained and is are the clothes dirty and is your robe polluted? Because if it is, then you're not who you say you are. Who are you? Because you're not with the people you say you are. And I think that this is an ongoing thing. I think there are times in my life, and I've been a follower of Jesus for a while now, and I can look back and say that there's been times where I've had awakenings, where I've had to, you know what, I'm not living as I should be living. And it's not like I was doing some evil sin or something. It's just I was not representing Christ well. Sometimes it was pride. Sometimes it was arrogance. Sometimes it was an attitude that was very ugly and very off-putting. And I would consider my, my robe was stained. Right, It was missing the integrity of who I was trying to represent. And I had to change. Does it mean if I would have died then, I would have gone to hell? I don't think that's even on the table here. I think it's just my life was out of sorts, and all that God is trying to do is put it in sorts. You know, It's not like, okay, if I said a prayer and I want it to be better. Okay, now you're in. I just think we want to make things so black or white that we're missing the deeper point that life is an ongoing thing. It's not just a moment of saying this, a moment of doing that, because I can do this one moment, but I've got to do it the next, and I've got to do it the next, and I've got to live the life. And that's why it's an ongoing thing. That's why this is the church which belongs to Jesus, but doesn't look like Jesus. And he's saying, wake up, otherwise you're no good. And I think that's the point more than anything of what he's trying to to get across here. To those who wake up, who stay unpolluted, who who conquer, Jesus is finally reiterating another promise well known from the Gospels, that he will acknowledge their name before the Father and his angels. Happens in Mark 8 and Luke 12. To be acknowledged by Jesus himself is a pretty amazing thing, right? The other day when we had the um, the benefit at the Lordsboro Tavern in San Dimas for Officer Castilla, who, you know, was, gave his life in the line of duty, uh, a few of us were there. Karina and I went late. We weren't sure we were going to make it, but we went in there. And uh, Jessica's dad, Mike, was playing in the band. You know, they're playing. And it's pretty loud. And so Karina and I came walking in, and we're just walking in saying hi. See Jessica. We're walking over to say hi to her and to Frank. And all of a sudden, Mike was on the uh, microphone. And he goes, hey, Sam, how's it going? You know, and I'm like, hey. And I get this, like, acknowledgement. Here's the guy who's playing. You know, and all of a sudden, it's like, Hey, I'm known, you know, the guy knows me and it feels good, you know. Hey, Mike, how's it going? Think about when Jesus says, hey, here's Sam, right? I mean, no comparison of what it feels like to be acknowledged by Jesus. Say, hey, I want you to meet someone. This is my son. This is my daughter. That's the idea. Right. That's the he's going to present us. Now, how does that take place before God Almighty? I have no idea. It's not like, okay, here's God, you know, shake hands. But something is going on that is very endearing and very personal. And that, again, is the point. 
goes, I'm going to take your name. I'm going to speak your name. And how amazing that would be for Jesus to acknowledge us before his father. And just, that should make us want to wake up. Right? That should make us say, man, I want to be a part of that. I want to be awake for that. I, I want to live into that kind of calling. Let's look at verse 7. To the angel of the church of Philadelphia write, These are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David. What he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. I know your deeds. See, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. I know that you have little strength, yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. I will make those who are of the synagogue of Satan, who claim to be Jews, though they are not, but are liars, I will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. Since you have kept my command to endure patiently, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come on the whole world to test the inhabitants of the earth. I am coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. The one who is victorious, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will they leave it. I will write on them the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven from my God. And I will also write on them my new name. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says. You know, when you are thinking everything is secure, And you're thinking life is stable. And then there's an earthquake. And then everything that's supposed to be stationary starts moving. It's a little uncomfortable, right? It's like, this should not happen, right? The earth should not be what's moving. I'm expecting the earth to stay where it is. And when it starts moving, everything's up for grabs, Right? Bridges come down, buildings come down, cars go off the road. You know, it's a mess, depending on how severe it is. And I know we live in California, we've had quite a few earthquakes, but there's always that little jolt, right? Is this, how big is this going to get, right? It starts off, and you know, because we've had so many small ones compared to how many big ones, we kind of, the odds are it's not going to be bad, right? But, you don't know at that beginning. When that starts shaking, your heart kind of stops. You hold your breath and you wonder, do I get out of bed? Do I, you know, what do I do? You kind of sit there and then, okay, it went away. It settled down. In central Turkey, where a lot of these churches were, in the first century, there were some very big earthquakes and Philadelphia had suffered one of the worst ones. Fifty or more years before this was written, much of the city had been destroyed and had to be rebuilt with a grant from the emperor where the, basically they provided money so that they could rebuild the city. And that's important when we get to the Church of Laodicea. And so in the city at that time, the buildings that were the public buildings were pretty big and they had these large columns. And you guys have all seen the columns that are there in the Roman columns or even the Greek. And can you imagine being under a marble column like that when the earth starts shaking and it just crumbles, right? The people who lived in more impoverished areas actually didn't have much to suffer because their houses weren't as heavy. Even though they were just, you know, flimsy, it didn't harm them. But the people who lived in these giant places built out of marble, they suffered a lot of damage and injury. And now there's this change, right? Even though the city was destroyed, these small people were spared because of where they lived while these rich and powerful people suffered and died and had to get help 
to be rebuilt. And that's kind of the image that we're seeing here. You see, because now the pillars are actually the people, right? The, the church now are the people who make up the church. And so Philadelphia knew a lot about earthquakes. They knew a lot about the buildings that had collapsed. Now he's saying, you're going to be a column that lasts, that doesn't fall, that doesn't collapse, that isn't shaken. You're going to make it through, right? Because that's what God is doing here. No stone, no marble will be involved. This is the human church. These are the people who are making up the temple of God. The first Christians, because of Jesus and because of the Spirit, regarded themselves as the true temple. Right? We are the temple of the Holy Spirit, the place where God now has made his home. Now, sometimes the Jerusalem leaders had called themselves the pillars in Galatians 2, verse 9. That metaphor depends on the force and the idea, again, of the church as the new temple. But now, far away from Jerusalem, here's this city of Philadelphia, these ordinary Christians far away who are also the pillar. In a city that's notorious for earthquakes and these buildings collapse, there's a promise to cherish. It goes close to that promise in the start of the letter that Jesus said at the beginning, right? He is the one, he is the steward appointed over God's house. See that in Isaiah chapter 22, Jesus is the one who is building this house, and now they are part of this building. And here is the only other church that doesn't have a rebuke. And notice again their condition, Remember, the other Christians were suffering. They were persecuted. Here we see them impoverished. And yet, he says that they're going to be rich. Um, Jesus has opened a door right in front of the Philadelphia Christians, and he's urging them to go through it. And Paul did the same thing, or used the same picture in Corinthians chapter 16 and 2 Corinthians 2, that they are to move forward in what God has for them. They have an opportunity not to just stand firm, but to make advances, to take the good news of Jesus into places, into the hearts where it hasn't been reached yet. You still have a purpose. You still have work, even though you don't have much strength. You have a purpose. And I think this is such a powerful realization when we think of ourselves as weak, when we think of ourselves as, or even people I know who I've spoken to who have been in a hospital, you know, suffering from cancer or other things where they're not able to do what they seem is like anything. But so many of those people I know were still able to be an example. We're still able to pray for people. We're still useful to God. Right. If you're here, you have purpose. And so let that purpose carry on and not give up, even though you might be weak, even though you might be poor. There's something that can be done where you're at, wherever you're at, in whatever condition you are at. So whatever excuses we have for not being able to live more fully, they really go to the wayside here because whatever you can't do, don't worry about. But whatever you can do, do. And that should be something that motivates us. They've been faithful. They've been keeping his word. They haven't been denying his name. That implies that some had already been persecuted to some degree, right? They they haven't denied his name, so they'd suffered already. They have to take courage and go through the door. They must grasp the opportunity that they have while it's still there. But there is something in the way. As in most cities in that region, there was a synagogue that was there. And the synagogue that he calls the synagogue of Satan was a 
powerful threat, even as we talked about before. And so, and it's not like there was a Christian church on one corner and a synagogue on the other. There was a synagogue on one corner, but then there were houses and small places where Christians would meet in smaller numbers. So where you would have a large number of people going to different synagogues, you would have a very small number of people in homes as Christians because it wasn't an established religion. And so you had an overwhelming majority of these people who did not believe that Jesus was the Christ and Messiah, bringing about accusations to these people who did believe it, and that's what was causing such problem, as was the letter of Smyrna. Now, the synagogue was using its civic status to block the message of Christ. They were doing so because they didn't believe that Jesus was the Messiah, and so they were challenging these people in so many ways. Now, it doesn't mean that the church was anti-Semitic, and that we are against the Jewish people and their beliefs, it really was the other way around back at that time. They had the numbers. They wanted to stop this message. And so they were making problems for those who did. What is a shame is that years later, when the Christians had the majority and the Jews were outnumbered, Christians started doing similar things to the Jewish people. And that's not the heart of Christ, and that's not the intention of here. Okay. Verse 9 is considerably harsher than its equivalent in Smyrna, which in chapter 2, it reminds us again that it's not this anti-Jewish sentiment that we have, right? It's an inner Jewish idea. It is, we want to see what, The true Israel is, as Paul would say. Those who are in line with the promise of God more than with the nationality, more than just with who they come from in genealogy. It is who do they belong to internally. And that's the difference that we have. One is based just on genealogy and ethnicity, and the other is based on the faith and belief system that Christ was promoting. And anyone could be a part of that no matter what their ethnicity, where the other ones know you had to be a part of this ethnicity, and you guys can't be because you're not. And so there's the contrast there. These groups can properly claim, you know, who is, we are the true Jews. We are the ones who have the Messiah, and here are you guys. Who do you say, you know, this Jesus is? But that's why it's clear that those who follow him this idea of the Davidic Messiah, right, that he talks about, the keys of David. What is that? Royalty. This is the right to the throne. This is you will have the ability to to go in and no one can keep you out. And you will not be shut out by anything. Why? Because this belongs to the Messiah and it's his rightful throne. And so that idea of the keys of David here has to do with, again, this confrontation of the Jews at the time and the Christians at the time in this city, how it was probably more extreme than in some of the other cities that we read about. Here it's showing up in a very detrimental way to the church, and he's helping them to understand, you guys, one day it's going to change. One day you will be the ones who they will be bowing to. You will be the ones on top. Now, again, how did we bow to Christ? Every knee will bow, every tongue confess that Christ is Lord. How did he conquer? It was through death. It was through service. It was through submission to the will of God for the love and sake of others. And so it's a whole different mindset. Because my mind, and maybe yours too, immediate goes when it says we will conquer or they will bow their knee. We think of it in that authoritative way. We think of a boxing ring where one standing champion, Muhammad Ali, raising his hand up, right? And the other's on the floor and on the map. But that's not the picture. The picture is conquering like Christ conquered. 
And so it's not like you're going to judge them and you're going to get them and you're going to be the ones, you know, over them. It's you're the ones who are going to come out on top because Christ was true and he is the true Messiah and he has the right to the throne of David and God is going to see this through. And in the kingdom of God, that is what's going to conquer and that's what we're going to be a part of. This is, as we saw, a common enough, you know, thought that they had at that time. Those who followed Jesus wanted to know, you know, what is our right to that name, Messiah? Is he really that? Is he on the throne? Then what is going to happen? How is it going to happen? And this is where the Philadelphia letter goes a little bit more deeper than what happened in Smyrna, because there's going to be that dramatic reversal. We see it in Malachi as well. God declares to rebellious Israel, I have loved you, contrasting Israel to the descendants of Jacob with Edom, the descendants of Esau, right? Now we have a similar contrast. The unbelieving synagogue will realize Jesus is the Messiah. He has loved this little group and he believes in them. And he is going to tell their names to God himself. Whereas the ancient prophecy had spoken of the times when four nations would come down, bow before the people of Israel, acknowledging that there is one true God with them. Now it's going to be the other way around, like Joseph's brothers in Genesis chapter 42. Right? When that's the whole point of Malachi, it's the one who you thought wasn't going to be something was something. The firstborn who's supposed to be something wasn't something. And God has switched it around. These people who you didn't think were anything, they're going to be something. That's how God is working. And it's kind of how God always works, by the way. God is always kind of on the side of the one who's being abused, the one who is always being you know, put in servitude. God is always on that side and saying, I'm going to take care of you. And he's been that way in history with all people. He's always hearing the cry of the poor, the oppressed, those who are in need. And he's always saying, I'm going to take care of this, which is what the kingdom of God looks like, right? They're the ones, too, who will carry the new name. Now, the name of God, heavenly Jerusalem, and Jesus. They're carrying, all this goes together, all right? It all kind of belongs together, bearing his new name. They are to be marked out publicly as God's people, as Jesus' people, as citizens of the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. They are to be marked out as this and to be joined forever with God. No one will be able to take this away. No one can close them out. No earthquake can shake them out of their foundation. Nothing can take their status away because it is anchored in Christ. The security, the, the ultimate reward that they have for their enduring these things for Christ is going to be their security with Christ. He's going to vindicate them. And the time of trial is coming on the whole earth. And like a powerful searchlight, it's going to reveal who is holding on to the truth of who Jesus is and who isn't. I believe that there is an ongoing trial that is taking place. I, I think it happened in that early century, and I think it's happening in every century after that. There is the challenge of how you are going to live. And the ones who will live according to the truth that God has set are the ones who are going to endure. And it doesn't matter how strong the nation is or the empire. It doesn't matter if it's the Roman Empire. It doesn't matter if it's Russia. It doesn't matter if it's China. It doesn't matter if it's the United States. It doesn't matter what nation there is. Nations will bow before the authority of Christ that is going to become victorious not by the power of assertion, but by the power of service. And it is the meek who will inherit the earth. I didn't say it. Jesus said it. 
And this is really what he's saying here. These are going along those same lines and proclaiming that this is how God is going to do things. This is what God is going to do. Hang on. You will see its completion. And you see, this is something that we can hold on to throughout all time. They could hold on to that back then. They could have held on to it 300 years later, 500 years later, 700, 1,000 to our time now. It's a truth that we can hold on to. This is how we are supposed to live. And this is the way of Christ and what it looks like. And so he is going to give us the new name, and we are going to be marked as his. We are going to be victorious. We are going to be pillars in the house of God. Why? Because we're walking like Jesus. We are following Christ and his character. We are taking what he said and living it out. Not just saying it by name, but saying it by life. And by doing these things, we are moving forward into this place. And again, he says, whoever has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. I think this is something that God is saying to us even today. Any thoughts or questions? Depending on where you are in the world, depending on where, there's still in Europe a lot of places that really have a degrading idea of them. It's true. And again, there's been, uh, I don't know, a, a lot of things that have been done. I mean, it's kind of been a role reversal, right? We see that in the early time of the church, it was the Jewish populace that had the numbers that would persecute the Christians. And when things changed, it became the other way around. And there's there's that tendency, right? There's always that tendency to take place. I saw a uh, a YouTube video with Jeff Foxworthy hosting it, and it was uh, Ravi Zacharias and Dennis Prager were both doing uh, not a debate but uh, talks, and they were asking questions. It was great. It was just so cool, and it was amazing how much these two people from you know these two faiths just really had this core value that was really. Uh, you could see through it all. It was really endearing. Um, Dennis was definitely more on a political, and then uh, Avi Zacharias was more on a uh, moral, I guess you would say, plane. But they really um, did go hand in hand pretty well. It was pretty powerful. Um, and just interesting to see that dynamic and where things have kind of come to a place where there is now at least the ability to talk without persecute or there should be in some places. Cause again, some places, man, I, I've been a part of some Christians talking to Jewish people, um, that were very, I don't know, not very well done. And it wasn't like they were mean. It's just, they were right and you're wrong. Right. Yeah, it's just like, well, this is, you know, this is this and this and this and you don't do this. And because you don't do this, you're going to, you know, and it's just, again, that mentality is so contrary to uh, anything productive. You know, when you start demeaning people, when you start just telling them they're wrong without trying to find a place where you can communicate to them. That's why I like this little interview thing that was there it's like these two people just seem like good friends and um both had great things to say you know both had powerful things to say and it seemed so respectful to one another um that it was really i know uh zacharias said oh your you know interview with uh what's his name it was an atheist i forget who it was it wasn't christopher hutch I don't remember. No, Sam Harris. It was Sam Harris. Um, he said, oh, that, you know, your interview with him was amazing. That was great. You know, where Dennis argued about how God is the one who established morality and how could you say that the world is better off without religion, you know. And, and it was 
because then I went and listened to that, right? Because I'm on that rabbit trail. I'm like listening to YouTube videos for two hours, listening to all these things. Um, but it was real powerful. And to hear him commending Dennis Prager, who's Jewish, about his, you know, talk with the atheist and saying this was very well, everyone should listen to that. It made me feel so just like proud, you know, like, yeah, you should, you know, go, go listen to this guy. He's Jewish and, and I agreed with him. Um, I just think that that's so important, right? And, and even though this is a, a conflicting passage of scripture, this is how things were at that time. But now that we are in a place here in the United States that have the majority, right? How are we going to treat those who are in the minority? What will we do if we have more power? Are we going to try and silence their voices? Bless you. Are we going to try and usurp our authority and power? Or are we going to act like Jesus and serve? You know, again, all these ideas of conquering have to be seen in the light of Christ and who he is. And how he conquered. Okay. Any other questions? Let's pray. Father, I do pray that there would be some powerful things for us to take from this. Pray, Lord, that you would, again, help us to uh, wrestle with some of the things that maybe struck a nerve with us. Areas in our lives that maybe have detoured from our call to be like you. And I pray, Lord, that we would not be tainted, Lord. We would not allow our garments to be stained by things that would keep us, Father, from representing you well. And, Lord, those can come in so many shapes and sizes. May we not limit them to just maybe a handful of things that we hear over and over again. Lord, I pray we would look at the areas of pride, that we would look at the areas of arrogance, Lord, that we would look at the areas of entitlement, uh, areas where we think we have the right to behave a certain way instead of the right to serve all. Lord, that's where I wrestle, and I pray, Lord, that you would help me in those areas, that I would not give in, Father, to that temptation to be arrogant in status. Thank you again for our time together, Lord. I pray you would help us as we live out for you. In Jesus' name, amen. You have been listening to the Genesis Podcast. We invite you to join us at one of our weekly gatherings. You can find more information at www.thegenesisstory.com as well as opportunities to help financially support this podcast. Thank you for listening.